Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello, I'm Joe Devine. Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. How are you, JJ? I'm good, but you've told a horrible lie to all the listeners. Done. I have done. I'm not Joe Devine. I am, in fact, Alex Stewart. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? So we actually watched a football game together, which was kind of made me remember the summer European Championship. That was fun, wasn't it? And the days of being with other people. Yeah, and we got the sofa out and, you know, drank coffee and snarked at Manchester United players and Chelsea players. It was fun. Yeah. Going to talk about that. Going to talk about Ralph Ranić because he has just been appointed just before we started recording. Going to do a little bit of on Everton and you've left some very sarcastic notes in the planner for that section. Um, Did I? Yeah, you've oh, put there are little bits where you've just put lol in block capitals. Oh, yeah. yeah. When we start talking about their transfer policy. So, we're going to do a little bit on that. We're going to talk about the Ballon d'Or because, yeah, well, we kind of have to, don't we? Ballon d'Or, you can't, can't really ignore it. It's exciting, I thought. Joe is not here, but I have been left instructions to complain about something. I have to rage against the kits in the Brighton Leeds game. So, we're going to talk about that. And we might do a little bit on Crystal Palace and their bad set pieces. But before we do that, do you know where it's got good set pieces? <laughs> Because <laughs> I'll tell you. Well, tell me, tell me. It's The Athletic. And if you subscribe to The Athletic using the code forward slash TIFO, is that it? Theathletic.com yes. forward slash TIFO football, yeah. You get some sort of deal. You may just have missed out on... Yeah, no more, no more Black Friday, unfortunately, but you will get 30 days free as a trial, which is a great offer. It's a great offer. Better yeah. than Black Friday, probably. I read it genuinely all the time. And you are really good at set pieces, so... I'm working on a thing that we're going to try and do for IRL on set yeah. pieces. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's a little secret there for everyone. If you, uh, there. But yes, I mean, what have you been reading recently on The Athletic, Seb? I, well, this is very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. I've been reading a lot about Ralph Ranić and... Rafa Honigstein's bit on Ranić when he signed was so good. Super, super, yeah. super. Also, his bits on the numbers of, not just coaches he's influenced, but the people that you don't who don't necessarily appear at the top level of the game. So you, you see people who are, you know, data analysts or who have progressed from being a data analyst to assistant coaches or, you know, all these people that are dotted around Europe and exist in their positions because of Ranić. And I, it was just fascinating to see his level of influence charted in that way. So highly recommend that stuff. And not just because it's relating to Man United, but just, um, yeah, go back and, and read all of Rafa's stuff on, um, on Rafa Ranić. Great stuff. Great, great, great. Right, shall we begin? After a short break... Question mark. Shall we? <laughs> I hope this keeps in the pod. We are back from our break. Joe would say something like, Chelsea won, won Manchester United. JJ. <laughs> uh -huh. JJ, we watched this together. And hey, let's start with our observations about Man United because it was a little bit different. Talk to me about why. 
So apparently Ralph Ranick has had absolutely no input whatsoever. Absolutely none whatsoever. None. None He's at not all. been in contact. They've said at Man United they've had Hasn't no even said hello on the WhatsApp. Like he just, he, you know, didn't, didn't like introduce himself. The journalist at The Athletic, the story is that they, he has not had any contact. It's just Michael Carrick's preparation yeah. with a bit of Darren Fletcher maybe thrown in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got Ranyuk all over it. It sure does. Why though? Explain why. Well, I think we should start with this because I did a video on it straight after the full time analysing the tactical part of it. And I realised what I didn't say in it was that Man United were rubbish. And they were. They had about 35% possession. The average positions in the first half, you look at those maps where you see where the where players tend to have touched the ball. They were all deep in their own half. All the advanced touches were wide. Sancho was the most advanced player. Nothing through the middle. But uh, what you saw was this 4-3-3 with Bruno Fernandes as, uh, I would say, a false nine in possession. But uh, when they were out of possession, he was very high and led the press. Very aggressive, trying to show the ball wide. Backed up by Sancho on the right. Rashford was nothing in the first half. He didn't do anything. He was everywhere and nowhere. Like he was, it was, he'd been given instructions about what to do off the ball. And it felt like that. I thought he was jogging first half. I felt like my United match preparation probably was based around what to do without the ball. And yep. that's fine because you're going to Stafford Bridge. But there was no plan for what to do when they're in possession. And like you saw, like anytime they recovered it in their own half, it just seemed to get hacked 40 yards up the pitch. And then they sort of fell back into their well, crowd. I thought that was actually something that they deliberately were doing. Like there's something Carrick said after the game that what they were trying to do was stop getting the passes into Jorginho and mm-hmm. Loftus-Cheek in the middle of the pitch. Because that was their, their two in the middle. You know, you can swamp them with like a, what's it called, a pentagon around them. So you've got... Fernandez, Sancho, Rashford, a rhombus, well, Pentagon. Is that the thing where you summon Pentagon's demons? Five, yeah, like the rhombuses are kind of, yeah. It what does is, sound like a sort of an enchanted stone. What is the one where you summon ghouls? Pentagram. pentagram. Yeah, there's no pentagram in that game. Pentagon, but pentagram is... Well, pentagram. they worked on the pentagram and they summoned the ghosts of pressing past. And of not conceding goals. Yes. And so obviously you, you swamp that um, the midfield two of Chelsea and you can stop them playing through there, but then they can just play out wide. And so it meant that the fullbacks had to push up high and wide. I think Wan-Bissaka started pushing high and then immediately regressed to what he tends to do and stayed deeper. But in possession, I kind of agree that maybe they didn't have much of a plan, but they've had a few training days without their new manager who's just been announced. And what you did see, and we talked about this in the video, was that... For example, where Lindelof would tend to play a short pass out wide to Wan Bissaka and build up, so maybe a ten-yard diagonal pass to his to his right. Instead, he was looking for the more progressive ball, maybe thirty yards forward towards Sancho on that right instead, which then allowed Sancho to lay it off or be able to turn, and they could immediately push up the pitch a good twenty yards higher. So they were able to push up. It didn't really work because I mean Chelsea had all the ball, like I said, yeah. they had all the play. The United weren't very good. They did almost steal it and they should have won it at the end. If Fred had slipped in a little reverse pass to Lingard in behind, I think they would have won. You were quite damning about wan during the game. Like we were, we were sitting there together and I, I'll be honest, JJ, at times I felt uncomfortable. It, was, it felt personal and vindictive. <laughs> and the general line on Aaron wan from a lot of people, and it just gets trotted out again and again, is good without the ball, good in one-on-one defensive situations, bad going forward. I don't know, it feels a little bit outdated. I'm not sure... There were times when, especially in the first half an hour, when uh, Chelsea worked Callum Hudson-Odoi into one-on-ones with him, and it happened again and again and again. It felt like that was a weakness that Chelsea were exploring. It feels like he's regressed as a player. I think it's because of coaching. He's gone backwards. Yeah, it does, like does feel like that. Maybe he's lost confidence. He definitely doesn't play as far forward as he used to. When he was at Palace, he was always really high and wide and good on the ball. And as we talked about before, he used to be a winger in his youth, so it's not like he's a bad player. He doesn't look comfortable or sure in possession. And a couple of stats for you that will help you kind of sell this to you. Of his total passes, 27, 17 were successful. 
That's this. a passing accuracy of 63% for that game. That is the lowest of any outfield player for Man United. 63% from fullback. Well, yeah. Tellers wasn't much better. He was 64.9, but he had far more, he made far more passes, 37. He was trying to be more attacking and he just played a few bad ones. Maybe he's not much sharper, whatever it was. But I think this is the kind of thing you see with Ban Masaka. Worse though, is in the opposition half when he had the ball, he made 13 passes and 38.5% of those were successful. That's bad. Yeah, that that's that's not so great. Also, feels like fullback touches the ball probably for most for most teams more than any other player on the pitch mm -hmm. because that's the out ball. That's like if you're working the ball out from the back, then you'd expect it to go either down the right side or the left side. It felt like beyond that Sancho ball, like there wasn't an awful lot of planning for how United were going to exit their own zone. Like it was, it felt very messy. Very, very chaotic. And it just feels also like if you've got if you've got players missing, so Shaw is out with concussion, Maguire is suspended, so you've got new pieces in the defense. Yeah. It's a strange thing to put those players into a situation at a against a team like Chelsea and not have a, a few mechanical exits up your sleeve. Just to kind of write this is how we're gonna work the ball out. I don't think you can coach that that's so different. But they must have had what when was the last game they played? Uh well they were away at Villarreal in the in week. Right. Um so, so you have a rest day after that, then yeah. you'd have it's a rest and recovery day, then you're probably going to have, uh, what, two sessions? Most? Yeah, but I, it w wouldn't it be part of, like, the strategy for making sure your defence isn't exposed to that much pressure? Because if you think about, like, we'll get on to Chelsea, and there were things that Chelsea didn't do particularly well, but you'd think, right, well, we want to make sure that our defence aren't, we want as much of the ball as possible, really. It doesn't have to be kind of progressive possession. It doesn't have to be with an aim. It just has to be to make sure we're not just sat there taking wave after wave of uh, I know, of but you're playing with, with players who aren't that great. They've not been very well. I mean, David De Gea has been pretty brutal about it, saying they don't know what to do in possession. So clearly they've not. I'm sure they've done sessions where they build out from the back. I'm sure they've done that. But you can see there are errors in positioning that mean that they don't have the... Like, wan Bissaka's passing, actually, it might not be because he's bad at passing. It might be because the options aren't there for him. That's kind of what I'm getting pass. at. It yeah. feels like there isn't a... When he gets the ball, he... Which is strange for someone who used to be a winger. It's like he slows the ball down. He gets the ball, he's in possession of the ball. Always goes backwards, doesn't always play the Always goes backwards. Yeah. There's always a... And it, it, at times, it looks like he wants to play a forward pass or a lateral one, and then he comes back inside, plays it back to a centre-half or a, uh, a midfielder that's dropped deeper, McTominay or Fred or someone. And it's a kind of ellipsis in United's game. It's strange, and it, it feels like it's not... For someone that gets criticised so often for not being good on the ball, it feels like there isn't a a, a way of him having a kind of a, a, a few set routines to go through to, to progress the ball. It's, it's odd. United tend, have tended to build out from the back and then they go wide to full back and it comes back inside. And yeah. Fred and McTominay are meant to go from there and build it. Fred was having a go at McTominay at one point for passing the ball backwards when he's supposed to go forward. Because again, yeah. that's obviously another, what I think, I mean, I could be well wrong because he's not working officially until today. But it seems very much like a Ranić instruction where you put the ball forward as soon as you can every single time. Short vertical passes. That's uh, that's Ranić 101 is to, you know, not necessarily play in like long straight lines, but to put the ball five, 10 yard passes up the field with accuracy and technique. And I understand that like yeah. you can't, that's the kind of thing you can't coach into a team overnight. I, I get that. And that, that that's fair enough. But there were times when there was that moment in the first half where Bruno Fernandes dropped into what was really kind of a left back role mm -hmm. and played that pass right across his area. It's weird to use him there because it suggests, and I think it's something we probably already know, that you don't have the distributing quality in those deep positions. So you need Fernandes to come and do that and to take the risk. But you're not just there to try and cover and help out defensively, which is exactly what the kind of thing you'd want. It's not organised or particularly structured, but that's the thing that will take months yeah. for them to have drilled into them under the new manager. Will he be able to make players like Fernandez and I mean Ronaldo's the obvious one to talk about? 
But is he going to be able to make those players adhere to his instructions for the better of the team immediately? Or are they going to do what they want to do because they are superstars already and know how to play? Well, I, I think that's wrapped up in the kind of what happens after six months because he's got this interim job for the rest of the season. And then this is something I don't understand about the appointment because you have Ranić, and everyone's very excited about Ranić because of what he represents and, you know, the projects that he's been the architect of in the past. But you call it a consultancy, which to my mind is something different to a sporting director. Certainly the roles he's had at Hoffenheim and RB Leipzig, it's not the same thing because consultancy sounds like a guy that comes into a a boardroom wearing a short sleeve shirt and like a pair of shorts and like comes in with a fresh set of opinions rather than your principal designer of footballing structure. And it's, it's weird. It's maybe, maybe this is just a, this is a product of the legacy of Manchester United's decision-making over the eight years since Ferguson left. But Why would you call him a consultant? Why would you why would you not change the language around that? Because someone like Rannick, I don't know if Rannick is exactly what they need, but he represents something that they need, which is sort of organization and a, uh, a cohesive aligned strategy in all areas of the club. But that's not what consultant means. It's a, hey, we've got this idea. Hey, go into Ralph's office, see what he thinks. But then, I mean, it's normal for huge businesses to employ consultants because you get a neutral perspective from out with the organisation. As soon as you become internalised, I'm sure there's something that might change with that. And perhaps you feel more, I don't know what words I'm looking for, but you're more involved because it is your you're, actual You're job. more integrated. I, I understand. It's yeah. just that if you look at Rennet's career, and there's a really telling quote that came from his time at Hoffenheim. I was rereading um, Raf Honigstein's Das Reboot over the weekend. And he described the Hoffenheim project before it turned bad, before Luis Gustavo was sold behind his back. He described the club as a blank sheet of paper. And that describes a few things, like firstly, no history, and Hoffenheim is a very peculiar situation. But also it suited his personality because he was able to, you know, like a soft piece of clay, mould it into exactly what he wanted. Not as a consultant, not as someone who was a second pair of eyes or a different set of opinions, but as someone who was front and centre and had a kind of a level of organisational control, which this doesn't... But then surely the reason for that is because they've, to use a cliche, had like fingers burned by trying to build things all around one person in the past and changing all the staff. Like Moyes came in, got rid of half the coaching staff, put in his own, yep. didn't work. Vingal brought on people, Mourinho brought on people, and they're trying to get some sort of structure which is built around kind of keeping people in the boardroom back in a bit like the Bayern Munich model where you have players who stick around forever essentially yeah you have that kind of family model there yeah and so you've got Darren Fletcher as like your technical lead is that what he is you, I, I think so it's a little bit the language around him is a little bit vague I'm not quite sure what he does but he seems to be the most senior he seems to be somewhere between coaching and technical support staff yeah so I, I don't know what his role is exactly but something like that but and this is a really good point about like the savior complex the one guy that's going to you know, drag you back to where you want to be yeah. but then when you appoint a person you still have to give them the, the conditions to succeed so if it's Mourinho you need to spend a lot of money if it's Van Hal, you need to defer a little bit to his ego and everything needs to become about his vision for how the game should be played the same is true for Ranić. so you can make the argument that if you're going to appoint him then you have to be of that mindset because you can't be sort of half in half out with a Ranić type because that's not how he works and that's not how he's worked in the past. It's also such an enormous job that to yeah. put one person in to try and lead that and turn that around in the short period of time what's he on like a, a seven month interim manager than yeah, two year consultancy six right? Six months and then two years. Yeah. It's such an enormous like gigantic company and yeah. and football club whatever you want to call it it's a company really to try and run that sort of thing. If he's a consultant he's able to cover more ground 
and help be a consultant rather than making huge decisions. So people who want to deal with recruitment, like the recruitment department, can now come to him as a sounding board to develop what they want to do and he can oversee that without having to be directly fully in charge of it. He's more to help shape it the way it should be. Same with whoever they bring in as the manager afterwards or technical directors, whatever the hell it is they want to call them or what they're doing, whether they want to have Fletcher there. I mean, they're keeping Carrick staying, McKenna, I think. There's another coach that's staying on as well. Feeling is still there. I don't know whether that's for good, but he's still there at the moment. He was on the bench yesterday. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sure I saw something and someone's tweeted about what the backroom staff's going to be, but Ranya will bring in some of his own people. So then they'll be all developing. So they're trying to develop what they've already got rather than trying to start again and bring in a whole new team of folk. I think I'm just a bit curious as to how that would work because if you think about where he's useful, so forget the like the first team at the moment, think about things like transfer policy. Yeah. So how does, famously, Rannick has like, the early part of his career, certainly his success has been from recruiting younger, under 23, more pliable players who don't necessarily have a reputation. I'm just curious as to how that marries itself with, or what happens, for instance, in uh, five years time when he's got this kind of army of young neophyte players and someone at Man United says, oh, well, we want to sign up a 45 year old Wesley Schneider because he's, <laughs> he's, he's of the status befitting our club because I feel like that's a major weakness of United and a weakness of the decision makers at the club. It, it's a, but that seems to be exactly why they've brought Ranyuk in to try and make sure they get that right. Yeah, but ex exactly that though, because who is in control of that then? Like the consultant? But the club's in charge of it. He's there as the consultant. That's the, so he's there to advise and say, this is what I think you should do. And then it's going to be either... But then who's, who's the other voice in that conversation? It. Who's the guy that goes, well, I disagree. I, I want my, you know, I want my, my, my 55-year-old Alvaro Acoba. Well, that, I mean, it, the Glazers can do whatever they want. They're in charge of it. I, I don't know who runs day-to-day -day stuff. Woodward's still there doing whatever he does. Richard then, Arnold. So Richard I, I Arnold, think the, right? the situation there is like Richard Arnold has no interest in being the Mr. Big in football. He, yeah. he's, I think he said something like, hey, if, if that was me, I may not be relegated within three years, which is, you know, it's a good level of humility which I'd argue yeah. has kind of been missing. But Rannick uh, is the consultant then, so if they ignore his suggestions and the way he, I mean, <laughs> assuming a lot of what it is he's doing here without actually knowing. But do you see what but I'm getting at? That, that, that kind of potential clash there where it's, it's a... Yeah, but then if they ignore what he wants to do, what he suggests and the way that he's proven to build a club and build a team before, then I'd imagine he'll just go like, well, I'm going to leave then. Yeah. He doesn't have to stick around. That's why they hired him as an outside consultant and internally to be the interim manager now to put in place what you want to have. Like you think of the young players that got, like Greenwood's really young. Yeah. Rashford can still learn. He's played at like international level, Champions League level. Is he already at the point where he doesn't want to learn anymore? Was he 23 or something? 24? Uh, a bit older, actually. Done it right. So, I mean, He's 25. Potential for him to learn. Fred will adapt to anything. I can see that he works hard. McTominay will listen and learn. Wan-Bissaka is at an age where he can be informed and learn. Sancho needs instruction and to play within a coherent structure. So that's the kind of players you've got going on there. Ronaldo is... Ronaldo and like Carlo Ancelotti was talking um, in uh, some interview with uh, I think it's an Italian paper I can't remember who it is saying how Ranić come in to put this press that you see things going to be a direct attacking football with a really organised intense counter press it'll be different to what he's done in other clubs because the players won't be able to do it but Ancelotti is saying at Real Madrid he'd be crazy to put a high press in because he's got Modric and Kroos in midfield they can't do it so you can't play like that same way I think Man United probably aren't built for it right now and he said if you had Ronaldo what you don't do is make him press you find a way to get him the ball and make use out of his talents and that's something that I don't know how Ranić does that with Ronaldo I mean Carrick if it was Carrick left him out of the team because he doesn't, you know, he can't press the way you want him to. And then, because it fit the tactical system, when he came on in the second half, he was playing left inside forward. He wasn't playing as a central striker as he has been for the last few years. 
which is very different to what he's expected to do. Hey, how, how awkward was that moment for the game where I think it was um, Patrick Davidson asking Michael Carrick, so you've left Cristiano Ronaldo out? Was just, there was sort of a, a silence. We're like, yeah, yeah, he's all right with it though. We, we, had, we had a chat and it was really nice and it was fine. He's, I believe him. I, I, I believe him too. Yeah. It was just really uncomfortable to watch on television. <laughs> it was a, a little bit of a look at one of the dynamics that we, we've been talking about it a bit over the last couple of weeks, a um, couple of months even since yeah. he arrived. And it's kind of, it felt as if, well, he has to play even though we know these things are going to be the result of him playing, but it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was uncomfortable. But that's the thing, if you have a player like Ronaldo who's capable of scoring pretty much out of nothing, I mean, I think Roy Keane was saying, part of his huge argument with Jamie Carragher, it was good fun to watch, saying how, I mean, if you're playing on the counter-attack and you have Ronaldo, he's the kind of player in the world that very few clubs will ever have that can guarantee you a goal yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I understand the whole point of it. And then if Carrick's been working on how to play that ferocious press, which obviously they can't do for 45 minutes at a time because they're new to it. I mean, they're, they're bottom of every stat to do with pressures, tackles, interceptions, everything for now in the Premier League. So that is going to have to change drastically. And how many sessions that take to learn, I don't know. Jurgen Klopp said something about how it's bad for the rest of the league that someone like Ranić's in there because they'll be very organised now, which is clearly quite a swipe at how bad Solskjaer's team was. But also saying how he like Ranjit will learn quickly that they don't have any time to train because yeah. they play so often. Like and you need sessions. This time of year as well. Yeah, you got you have to have lots of recovery and rest. Yeah. So you have to have those sessions in. It'd be a lot of gym work just to keep you going over and not doing too much demanding stuff. That you can tell someone with video analysis where they're supposed to be and when. You can do like a low intensity shaping, but if you want to get them up to the standard of the pressing and how highly intense that is without causing injuries to players that you have when you're going constantly doing a recovery and rest um, sessions to try and get them back in like, it, it just takes so long to get that in that it would slowly imagine it's a video game that bar will go up really slowly up to full 100% before they can possibly do it like, it really will I think good coaches will get done straight away but then it takes players and do they have the right players for it are they going to buy in January to try and develop what it is they want to be able to do I'm really interested to see what they do in January because it could shape a lot yeah. of what. and again what you're talking about the what Ranik will input for in terms of recruitment. Because the average age of the squad is something like 27, I think, isn't it? And he's used to working with largely under 23s. He, yeah, certainly at Hoffenheim and Leipzig, everything was kind of based around an under 23 basis. So, yeah. Hungry players, yeah. Yeah, but I also think, like, if you, it, it brings into the equation players that people haven't mentioned for quite a long time, like guys like Ahmad uh, Palestri, I think, is out on loan somewhere. So you have these kind of interestingly young, not properly defined. Pelitri is pronounced. Pelit really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Secundo like Pelitri. That's the one. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so young, direct right. players, skillful, technically good. So you, you have, um, I don't know, there's, there's a kind of, it feels to me like January is a little bit more, or January and next summer is a little bit more about who you can get out of the club as well. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's the kind of the big question. Anyway, right. I'm going to lean into the Joe Devine character and say, right, I'm bored of this. Let's move on. Let's do something different. Something that interests me. And we'll have a break first and consider what that might be. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? 
FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We are back from our break. Let us talk about Everton. You know, I actually, I love in the um, podcast comments when people timestamp and they do the break. So it will say something like 14 minutes, 37 seconds, break. 14 minutes, 41 second, break ends. <laughs> I like that they annotate that properly. Uh, I like let, putting that, yeah. We also watched Everton. Well, you were kind of swearing your iPad while Celtic were playing Aberdeen. Yes. But I watched I Everton. And I was dismayed because 14 Everton shots, bulk of the play. I don't remember really any attacking threat. I remember a couple of big, looping, pointless headers from Alex Wobie and Salomon Rondon and a lot of sideways passes. And it felt like Everton could have had the ball for the rest of time and not created a really decent attacking opportunity. And I was looking at Rafa Benitez's quote off the game because obviously Benitez came into a difficult situation. He's not not popular at Everton for obvious reasons, but I'm paraphrasing. But he said, um, can't fault the effort. Players work really, really hard. They deserve something more from it. We had lots of crosses and shots. And it made me think because... I know that there'll be, if you look at their the Everton's upcoming fixtures, they've got Liverpool, Arsenal and Palace in succession and haven't won since the end of September, which I think was home to Norwich City. And you think, right, well, pressure's going to build. But then the question is, with this group of players, what else can you do? Like if you saw that lineup, the lineup that they, they, they played with yesterday, which was at the top of the pitch, Rondon with Awobi behind, Anthony Gordon to the left and Andros Townsend to the right and Alan and Decore sitting behind as a, a double pivot. What would you expect that was different yesterday? Like, what would a different coach do with that group of players? I don't see any solution. I mean, you could say that Brentford have a far less talented group of players and were Mm. better. Were they better? I think they were more efficient. I think they uh, did more with the ball. That's probably the way I put it. Yeah. The thing is that Rafa Benitez is a very, very, very defensive coach. Very conservative, yes. And I think so he was... Widely praised because he's achieved a lot of things, very successful. Like, I mean, he won the league with Valencia when he shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been a very good coach over time. But his last few teams have been not great at all. Uh, his Newcastle side were praised for being tactically very astute. They just played in the 5 4 1. They were tactics. Deep block, hitting the break. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing special to it whatsoever. Steve Roos didn't do anything really different. There was occasional bits. I think Benitez was probably more tactically aware in certain games. I can't think of any specific examples, but I've seen them in the past. It doesn't really matter. But this team, the group of players, you're only like you're only as good as your players, but it's a really lower mid-table average side. I think why this is so worrying is because we understand, or we, we know of Everton's FFP situation. And you and I were going through kind of some of the transfers from the past. And it's just a, from a like, what does this bring to the team perspective? It's bad. It's a bunch of nonsense, which they signed. Yeah. But also from a, I kind of put Everton and Spurs in the same bracket in the, in the sense that like you're, you're buying with one eye on like technical improvement, but also on, well, I'm going to flip this player in two, three years time and sell him for a profit and then reinvest somewhere. Yeah. I'm looking at some of these names. Um, in fact, let's make this more fun. What's your favorite name from this list? I don't think I've ever seen Jean-Philippe Cabamins play ever. Okay. I'm taken aback. I thought you were going to put Yannick Balassi in there. Or David well, Klassen. he was a bit of fun, though. He was fun to watch. For he's a, a good player. Like He's a talented player. It's just that he was the wrong player at the wrong time. I understand why that happened. But it's, it's been an exercise in, in wasting an opportunity. 
Yeah. Um, because in a situation where, well, they're in their their recent sort of transfer activity, the kind of the the summer that's just passed, kind of characterizes where they are and what they can do, and their kind of room for manoeuvring, and they're very much in the let's hope there's a Demari Gray for 1.5 million around. He was actually quite good on Saturday, yeah, on Sunday. Sorry, he was. Um, He's been one of the best players of the season. Demari but I, but this is the thing. Like I, the thing that's missing from this team is creativity in that kind of area. Maybe Anthony Gordon can become that player. I think he's quite talented. He's all right, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what he's going to grow into. I, I don't know enough about him. Everton's recruitment reminds me of when I go into Tesco drunk yeah. and I've gone in to buy like good food. And when you're hungry. Like I need to buy some like chicken yeah. and probably like some wraps or some bread and eggs, something, you know, just normal things they would have. And then I end up buying particular vegetables to make a stir fry I'm never going to make. And I buy Pringles, which I don't really want to eat anyway. I stole food from yesterday. I forgot to tell you, sorry. Um, I was doing the live stream and it got to about 9.30. I was really hungry. And one of those weird sort of toffee chocolate things was on your desk. There's one left. And I thought... You stole a caramel tonic swafer? Yeah, I'm really sorry. Okay, I, There was no food in the office and there was not enough time to order. I don't mind. I just That's the other kind of thing I buy when I'm drunk. Tonics wafers similar thing so the time paper would be like buying Theo Walcott for 20 million just because quite nice at the time it's on the shelf doesn't really do that much for you you can buy it and you don't really think enough about whether you should or what, what it's kind of calorific value is yeah Davy Classen is like when I buy more peppers when I already have peppers in the fridge no I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what no, Davy Classen for you is you know that that um, like fruit cordial thing that you buy every time I'm anywhere near a Tesco's with you oh the summer fruits cordial yeah, yeah, the double yeah, strength yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've known you properly for about seven months. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, over the Euros, we were, you know, any time I would say something like, oh, I'm in, you know, Tesco, does anybody want anything? Like Joe would be like, oh, you know, Joe likes sweet stuff. Like Joe gets a muffin or a, you know, and you always, I want the summer free cordial, which is like a- Double it, strength. Yeah, double strength. But it's also, it, it comes in a- um, This is the best use in the world, by the way. You, well, it, it is, but it's massive. It's like, it's like trying to carry- uh, like a, a dumbbell back from Tesco's. It's massive. It's a it's a huge, and I don't know how you go through so much of it. Because it's delicious. It's delicious. <laughs> so that's your Davy Clarkson. Oh no no <laughs> that that would be very much because uh, it was cheap. That would be, that would be Damari Gray for one point eight million. That's a good deal. I'm trying to think like Andrew no, Gomez because, you're you're, you, because you because Alex Awobi was twenty seven million pounds. He was clearly a mid table player at Arsenal. So I remember being at. Uh, this is years ago now, I was sitting next to Nick Miller, our good friend Nick Miller, at the Liberty Stadium, watching Arsenal against Swansea. And we were having a conversation about what Alex Awobi is as a footballer. Like, I look at him and there are abilities there. Like, he's quite good at His a few things. His technique is like, brilliant. Yeah, but, touch. but then, yeah. like, I think there's two conversations. There's what are his attributes in the kind of football manager, like, number out of 20 way. But then what's his function? Because yesterday he was playing... It's almost like he's trying to play as a number 10. And I don't see him as someone who has those technical attributes. I don't see him as someone who can play that kind of pass, for instance. Or well, no, I mean, he can't, he can't shoot. He can't cross. He's not particularly good in the air. Like, I, I think he's a good footballer, but... I think he's not. a very Arsenal footballer. That generation yeah. of Wenger players that came through, there's a, there's a lot of them who are basically advanced playmakers, technically uh, proficient, like good movement, but they don't actually achieve anything they don't get the numbers that you need so they're, they're good players and you I mean they're worth money like he's a valuable player because he is clearly a good footballer he just doesn't actually get you he'll never get you like 10 goals a season I hope he hasn't done that I'll be annoyed no basing off I'm just looking at football managers now so like for 
Arsenal, he was two goals in 13 and three in 26, three in 26, three in 35, he one in 25. He had good moments though. Like I remember one of his last goals for Arsenal would have probably been that Europa League volley against, or half volley against Chelsea. In, the um, good players are capable of stuff like that. I bet he's amazing in training as well. But this yeah. is the problem, like for me, when having watched him play, like I just said, I think he's a, good, a decent enough player, but he doesn't actually produce anything. And I would never have sanctioned 27, like you'd never buy him in Football Manager. Would you? you didn't, even if you're a lowly team, if you get them for 27 million, you'd rather look for someone younger you can develop into someone who's actually going to get you numbers. Well, also, if you're in that period of a like of, of trying to construct a squad where you're making that kind of purchase, like I'm okay with buying an, like an Alex Awobi as decoration. He's a bauble. He's not on my Christmas tree. Yeah. Like I want I want players that give my side definition. So they give uh, like when you think of Everton, you think, oh, they've got a Thiago in midfield, and that's kind of who they are, or they've got a Pogba or whatever. And you don't think of a team as an Alex Awobi team. And we're not trying to get at him. It's just that it's a very muddled way of thinking. It's a very strange kind of priority to say, right, well, he's available. So we need to have that player because mm -hmm. the one thing that we're missing is a slightly vague but talented sort of attacking player that does certain things. We're not quite sure what they are because it doesn't feel like Everton need any more of those. And he's homegrown as well. He, so yeah, he was raised. Yeah, so yeah, squad, he, yeah, he represents Nigeria, but he is, I think yeah. he is, um, he does count as a homegrown player. So it's really weird. And I, I feel bad about Everton and worried for them because I don't, some squads you look at and you think if you had a different voice on the training pitch and you set them out in a different shape, then you're going to have something that looks a little bit different. Don't get that feeling about Everton at all. No, I bet um, Ralph Ranić would do a good job of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this thing they're built to play in the counter. He's trying to bring players like Anthony Gordon through, like you're saying. I think he's quite a good player. Like I, I technically, I think he needs. I think all their players are quite good, but they're just not. Yeah, but in, in a in a quite good, and I think he could become better player. Like I think there's there's something there. I don't know what it is yet, and I don't mm. know what his long term position is, but. I don't feel like he's one of those token homegrown players that gets shoved on the pitch and everyone over celebrates because they're a homegrown player and they're from the local area. I think he's actually pretty talented. I think Alan and Dukuri, I think, is a good midfield too. Yep. Ben Godfrey's got a lot of potential. I, mm -hmm. I don't think he's a superstar, but I think he's all right. But the, the, the spine's okay. Like Jordan Pickford, is he good? I don't know. I think he's good, but I don't trust him. And not in the kind of like, I wouldn't lend him money way. I, I just mean like... I bet there's a good player in there to build around. I mean, you go from Pickford to Godfrey to Dekuri. That's decent enough. Townsend's been all right. Well, I don't know. Richarlison's a good player. Richarlison is a good player. He's a really good him player. and Calvert-Lewin, who are their two best players by miles, and the ones who would get into a top six squad. But the thing is, the two. is that... Dinia maybe as well. I, I was thinking yesterday, like, I think one of the lines I saw on Twitter was, oh, you can put Calvert-Lewin at the, uh, the front of this formation and you're in Rondon's place and, and the problem gets solved. And I think, well, no, because you've still got supply issue. Yeah. And yes, Richarlison changes that a little bit, but then there is still too many question marks in that side. I don't think Luca Dino is a particularly good player. I think he's... No, I think he's really good. You don't like him? I think he's quite a good attacking player. I don't think he's particularly good defensively. Yeah. And it also makes me nervous because Seamus Coleman's been a really good player for a really long time, but he's coming towards the end of his career. And so, like, I always like it. And I don't know if I'm right in thinking this. Always like it if you've got proper defensive security on one side of your fullback tandem and a bit of ambition on the other. I don't like it when you've got a few flaws on both sides. That worries me a little bit, particularly if you've got a few issues in, at centre-half too, because I still don't really know how good Michael Keane is. Again, yeah, very mid-table. Yeri Mina, I don't know. Like some days you watch him and you think, I can absolutely see why he signed for Barcelona. And then other days... I can absolutely see why he got sold so quickly by Barcelona. Um, and he's uh, he's a funny player. Well, so. they do have Duncan Ferguson sitting ready to go and take over from Benitez if they were to, to chop him. Uh, yeah. And he got a lot out of the strikers, played wingers. 
Yes, he did. Pretty much a basic four four two. A bit like a Ranyak team. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break. All about Ranyak. And we will come back and I've been told by Joe to rage against something. So we'll do that. The machine. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back and I am angry or I've been told to be angry by Joe. Joe is not happy at all about the, well, I was going to call it Kit Clash. Uh, in the Brighton Leeds game, Joe's pretty furious. Joe, Joe gets angry about weird stuff like he really, really, really hates players chewing gum during foot matches. It scares him. It makes him feel like he's going to choke. Also, uh, at least once a weekend, I get some kind of comment from him on WhatsApp about a like two kits who are too similar on the same pitch. Really upset about it. not in a kind of like you know this is this should have been better. It's like yeah. uh, this needs to change. Something must be done. And that is the problem. They're too similar. It's not a kit clash They're, because yeah. what you want is a kit clash. Because a kit clash means that the two colours are clashing so you can identify them easily. When we came in this morning, well, last night when we planned our preparation for the podcast, we said, oh, we're coming to do an hour and a half. We probably did about 20 minutes on the difference between kit clash and kits being too similar. Well, the point, so the, the reason it's so annoying is on TV, they look incredibly similar. Brighton are wearing what you described as a pastel purple, which is, no, Leeds are wearing that, sorry, like a pastel purple kind of colour. Mm-hmm. And Brighton are in their white and blue, which... Sure enough, at like high def TV, you can sort of distinguish from it. But when the colours blur and they're moving, it looks very, very similar. And I bet it'd be hard to tell them apart if you're playing yeah. on the same pitch. Hey, also in, in snowy, wintry conditions where the, the picture isn't crystal clear anyway. Yes. That would be very, very strange. Hey, we should explain why Joe's not here. So basically, he came into the office this morning, took a look around and then just walked out, <laughs> which is very weird. But um, not sure when he'll be back probably when he wants to be he's just he's having he's he, he just can be a little bit deverish like that um, yeah he, he just, said see you chumps later he just didn't fancy it he mm. he walked in uh he didn't even take his coat off and he just walked out and um you know we haven't really seen him since but maybe he'll be back next week hope so don't know anyway palace villa big thing with palace at the moment i like palace palace interests me because i feel like i'm i'm, I'm getting a different thing every time i watch them but one of the familiar themes, one of the things that has, uh, one of the threads running right through their season has been conceding goals from set pieces. Um, and this is a weird one because I watched the the, the goal they conceded, the um, Matt Target ends up scoring the goal. Yeah. And it, it's funny because um, it's quite a clever move from Villa. Like basically, there's a, a bunch of two players, Target separates by drifting to the back post. James Tonkins pays no attention, ball drifts over his head and Target is there probably just outside the far post to drill home and open the scoring. And it's really weird to me because if you had, if you had a statistic like that and you were, you know, you're a player and you probably spend 
couple of days trying to work on defensive set pieces, surely the thing that you work on most is concentrate. Like if you get done by a really clever move, like a, a near post flick and a load of misdirection and a clever bit of blocking somewhere, okay. Or like a really good corner, which just is just perfect delivery, great header, fine. Yeah. This is so avoidable. I don't so, understand how it happens. Well, it's a mix of zonal of man, I think. And then what you have is Kiati gets drawn towards the ball, trying to clear it, but then loses the battle for a header, which... Then it goes over Tonkin's head. He tries to, he tries to, um, it's too high. Um, yeah, it's Mitchell and Kiati are, are my, so target is paired with, who is at the back post with him? Ming's target and someone else. I can't remember, it might be Ramsey. You're standing next to him in the middle and then Ramsey pulls away and Kiati gets drawn towards the ball stands underneath it rather than testing the header which leaves target free they are meant to have been organized there that they look like they were set up properly but, but then like, my, that's individual error when you see, yeah but when you see target drifting to the back like, he doesn't drift he just stands doesn't he move backwards or is that just no, an illusion he, he stands exactly where he is so he, there's two of them together mings makes a little run towards where he meant to go target stands basically in the same spot he was at it's because kiati leaves him so he, leaves, he abandons his man mark and just go and do that probably worried about where mings is but also um mitchell gets drawn towards it as well so they just react in the moment it's individual error that i think palace are set up the way they're supposed to be but okay. the individual error so that's the kind of thing it's tomkins markings only though because he gets caught under the ball it looks like he's probably like a, he's a centre half, so he'd probably yeah. be zonally in in around the six yard box. But it, my point is, he also goes towards it as well. Yeah, but that's the thing because they all get drawn towards it, and it's not the most sophisticated corner move, like the corner routine. And yet, it's a. When I said Mitchell, I meant Tompkins. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, he goes towards it, and and target is just left there in, in two or three yards of space, and it's kind of like if we're going to concede a set piece, and if this is going to continue to be a conversation, because I imagine if as a defence you keep conceding goals from set pieces training days are miserable because like it's the thing that your set piece coach your defense coach whatever like bores on about again and again and again well, just, they'll show the video analysis of it show you what you should have done and then they will work on defending the set pieces the way they should have done what would you what would you even say there like yeah that guy there that you've left completely free five yards from goal don't do that again like that's not 100 percent. i mean this is the thing that better players thing. don't do it this is why like i mean they'll work on it a lot i'd imagine because set pieces are, what's it ranyak to bring him up again they said that if if thirty percent of goals are scored from set pieces, yeah. you should spend thirty percent of your time on the pitch training pitch doing set pieces. So uh, I think that there is individual error. Players getting like Tompkins and Kiati have just got that wrong. They've both gone to a bit the bit of the box you shouldn't have done. They've misread the the fight of the ball, and that's something that they can work on in training. But you can't you can do as much as you want on the training pitch, but you cannot like you just cannot control the players like a PlayStation in the box. And that's the problem with be being a manager, surely. Yeah, it just feels like it's a... It's Sergio a, Ramos would have won the ball or had the guy marked. Yeah, but it, it's, it's not that, because I can, I can accept... I think, as a fan, I can accept technical failings. Like, if someone gets beaten in the air, yeah. I'm okay with that as long as they've competed. If they're a little bit late... So, right, for instance, the West Ham goal, the Michael Antonio goal, where he beat Harry Kane to the ball at the near post, about a month and a half ago. And you think... That annoys me because a goal has been scored, but I understand how it happens because he's just moved quicker. And, you know, like the forward has the benefit of knowing where the ball's going, where the ball's intended to be delivered to. And so they have a little bit of a, a split second advantage. In that scenario, like you're just not paying attention. Like it's just a, okay, you've got two players. One goes one way, the other goes the other. It's, it's kind of like, it's a schoolboy corner routine. It's just a weird mistake. It's like a mental error that's very... I mean, I'm getting, just, getting weirdly worked up about it. I don't know why. Yeah, who is that at the near post? I feel like when I saw that for the first time, I must have been in a terrible mood because it's bedded into me. Just them not winning the ball at the near post. I'm just watching that goal now, Antonio. So it's an outswinger, left-footed from the left side. 
headed in the near post. It's the football manager corner routine that Ian McIntosh praises works really well yeah. in the game. You set these guys up, they're organised, they're set up, they know what they have to do, but they're beaten one-on-one. And that yeah. will happen sometimes by a player who's either got more desire or it's just physically better. Ten goals Palace have now conceded from set pieces. And I, I think the, the next worst team in the league is about seven. It's not great. Right, um, in my notes, um, I've just got something which says pundits shouting at each other. I don't really know what that refers to. And let's skip forward over that to... Oh, that's Carragher and Keane uh, screaming yeah, at each other. That, that, okay. That got really squeaky in a kind of very, very high pitch. I, I, I couldn't... It, it felt like parts of that argument went above the level of hearing that I'm capable of. Yeah, I, I don't mind it when they get a bit involved. It's like when you are... And I like that they clearly have respect for each other and are maybe not best pals, but they're, they're friends. So I like being able to see someone have a bit of a battle and it's not yeah. actually in any way threatening. It's good. I like that... It's conflict. I like that pundits care. Yes. And that they're invested. I think there's a little bit too much focus on pundit bias now. Like, I feel like when, when I see a, like a... a partisan. Twitter, yeah, because people are allowed to be partisan. Like, you, I remember, like, when you write an article and people go, well, well you're just biased. You're, you know, you're, you're a fan of this. It's like, of course I'm a fan of a club. Like, why do you think I'd do this? Like, why would... Do you, do, you, do you think people that aren't interested in football end up working as football writers or football whatever... Like, so it's kind of fair enough. And that's particularly true of ex-players. I feel like when it becomes, I don't like when it crosses the line and becomes an act. There was a time when Sky Sports used to, during the Liverpool Man United game, they would, um, over, over the last couple of seasons, actually, they would kind of lean into the, well, Gary Neville's Man United fan and Jamie Carragher used to play for Liverpool. And we're going to kind of look at their little reactions to goals. I felt like that's a little bit, I don't need that. That's mm. where I kind of draw the draw the line. I don't, I don't want sort of... Um, I don't want added melodrama with my football. Um, yeah, but then I also like that they're not trying to hide that that's what they are. I mean, there's no need for that, really. Yeah, because actually the other, the other thing is... As long as you're able to analyse things in a neutral way, which they both are very clearly good at, it's fine. Well, uh, and also the, the too, too far the other way is just as annoying. Like, I, there's um, a bit kind of like, oh, I'm so jaded by this whole thing. I just have no passion left for the game whatsoever. It's just so tedious and, and you know, I don't like that. Like, no. I, if you're doing that, then what are you doing? Like go and do something else then if you don't if you don't like it because it's a sport isn't yeah. it? it should inspire something, and it feels like um, I, I remember once a I think it was at Manchester City uh, a fan walking past the press box there which is kind of sat in the stand and he looked at a, a local journalist who I, I didn't know and said oh that, that must just be the best job in the world you know and the fan was kind of this is you know it's great you get paid to do that and I think most people would agree that's like that's a really cool it's thing amazing. to do yeah. and this journalist turned around and was like yeah it's just a job mate it's like. Ban that, him. That always Ban me him. Because it, it's a root, it's, it's an act. Because if you think that going to the football, getting a free meal and getting one of the best seats in the house and getting paid to be there, like there was never a time when I, when I went to the press box and I thought, this isn't great. I would literally bounce out of bed. It's fantastic. Oh, it's an imposter syndrome that you wouldn't oh, imagine mate. walking around. Next I took all the photos of everything, like a load of my Instagram. Like I, I did it for about three or four years. And I, the first first game I ever went to, I took pictures of everything, like the program, the entrance to the press room, the menu for the meal, like everything I could. Because it was like, yeah. I'm here and you're not. And I'm really happy about that. So, <laughs> so for listeners who, who haven't had the privilege uh, oh, of amazing. which I am 
I can't even tell you how grateful I am to have the opportunity to do it like five times or something. The press box is where obviously all the journalists and media people go. But when you go to the stadium, you get through a separate entrance. You go into this media entrance. Oh, it's so exciting doing it. I remember going to Emirates the first time. I was like, wow. And you go to the entrance and they let let you in with a pass that implies that you're a real person. And you go through, you get a Wi-Fi code and then there's this big open room and there's all the famous writers. They're all there. And some of the people love TV, like Jess Freesby walking about, people like that. And you're just there as a real person next to them. And then they have, usually they have free food that you get to eat, I think. Chelsea's is amazing. Arsenal's is all right. And then you maybe do that. You feel so important. Oh man, I felt just so stupid being amongst it all. And then and you have to, like you, you see what everyone else is doing. They're all seem to be doing work. So you think you should be doing work too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you pretend to do work. Yeah. And no. then you go into the, uh, into the stands and you get your seat next to another big famous writer. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, I think this imposter thing might like, wear off, but that's probably when you start doing it. It's just a job, mate. But for me, it's internally exciting. And you sit in this, this really great seats and you do your work. You observe it and you've got to type. And the guys who write for papers, they are furiously typing because they have to have, they've got deadlines, obviously. And so they have to get it done by a set time and they fire off this piece. And some of the people you sit next to, and the stuff they come out with, you can't believe uh, they've written I can't next tell to you. you how difficult that is. Like I, you've done that a lot, right? Lots of well, yeah, but I, but I also, yeah, but in like a very formulaic way. Like I read some of the things that because you are a real writer. Eh, nah, but the point is, is that like um, I read some of the things that um, someone like uh, Johnny Lou, yeah, <laughs> Jonathan Lou is amazing. I, 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 every every now and again, like. I, I will have been at the same game, you know, this, I haven't done it for a couple of years now, but I, I would have been at the same game as him and I'd be on the train back home or somewhere else. And like you read what other people have written because well, why not? Yeah. And I'll have written the kind of like, and then he passed the ball and scored a goal and it was a goal and yay, terrific. And now they're 12th in the league. And he'll have come out with a, a comparison to Renaissance painters. Prose, and it's like reading yeah. kind of a modern version of the Iliad. And I'll just be sat there thinking, I saw all of these things, but there's no way that I could have processed all the stuff going on on the pitch, all the stuff going on around you, because it's a very sensory experience, press box. Like it's very loud, it's great. And the smell of the food, and it's magic. And then also all the consequences. And then you've got a deadline because he's working for like, I mean, I I would write for places on the internet. Like he was writing, he still is writing obviously for The Guardian. And that's that's true of a lot of people. Like Henry Winter is a great, great match reporter. Roy Smith is very, very good. Like, you know, these guys, um, Rich Jolly is a very good one. He's, he's excellent what he does, but it's it's a it's an amazing skill. I never really acquired it, but it, it was it was um, to watch it was incredible. Yeah, I think um, I did it only once or something. I remember sitting next to Johnny Liu doing a when we both worked at Telegraph, and I, I was talking to him all the way through it, just as you would. And while he was talking and taking in the game, he wrote one of the best match reports I've ever read. And yeah, I can't remember yeah, what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. It's um it's a funny thing. I, I, my only memories really are like I did a, a, about four years of it and the amount of times I embarrassed myself in weird situations. Cause like when you first, the first time I ever went, I was using my press card as like a police badge, you know, like, because like you, you, it's, <laughs> you don't really know, no one tells you where to go. No one says, where's the press entrance and what do you do and what do you do here? And how do you get from the press box to the um, press conference auditorium? You yes. just, you find out by making stupid errors. Like I, I once walk, almost walked into the players tunnel at Stanford bridge cause I went through the wrong door. And I was trying to, you know, open the door and open the door. And one of the, one of the media officers there had to actually stop me. I walked into and a- And the players are all through there going, what's going on? What is happening here? <laughs> like an incident. In. Um, I walked into an electrical cupboard, which I couldn't get out of at Selhurst Park. Sorry, you were trapped inside an electrical cupboard at no, Selhurst Park. I, well, you know, Selhurst Park is a, um, you, get your, you get your accreditation and your lanyard from a different part of the ground. And then you walk into the press area. 
And I didn't know that. And I didn't know where anything was. And so I just, I walked towards the pitch and took a right turning. And I was in a room where I shouldn't have been. There was, there was, it was a place where they were storing, you know, the, um, the little plinth that the, the, the football is on before uh-huh. kickoff. There was a couple, there was one of those in there that was just being stored. And I was like, I, I, I shouldn't be in there. How long were you in the cupboard for it? Uh, well, I tried to go through the cupboard to the other side because I thought it was like, a, um, you know, an ante room. It wasn't. Um, so probably about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, these memories that I out? have. No, I just, I just retraced my steps eventually. I realized I had to go somewhere else, but no, I- You weren't it, locked or anything? No, no, no. And it's, um, it's an amazing privilege. I'm so glad I did it, but I did embarrass myself quite a few times. I also, I put my hand up in my first ever press conference like I was at school. If you want to read more about Seb Stafford Bloor being trapped in the electrical cupboard at Selhurst Park, you should buy The Athletic. That's what we're going to film this week, actually. Just like a kind of, yeah, first person collection yeah. of just awful experiences. Yeah, if you want to read about um, much better writers um, not embarrassing themselves, then subscribe to The Athletic. Uh, Go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO football. And I think that will probably do it. So what would Joe do here? He would say something like, um, he would probably make a noise. You, yeah, there, there you go. Um, do you want to just predict your Ballon d'Or winner would be? Because this is uh, on Tuesday. Oh, pressure, pressure. I would give it to uh, Ah. Um, oh, I'm all Robert frazzled. Um, yeah, I think so. I love watching him play. I think he's just brilliant. Um, it's his time, I think, isn't it? Also, I feel like he's owed one for the COVID year because yeah. he was brilliant. Um, also, um, I know uh, it's been a long time since Gerd Müller retired and sadly passed away recently. I don't think he'll win it. He probably won't win it, uh, but um, to pass his record, uh, I think that's the kind of thing that merits a Ballon d'Or because that's one of those sort of monuments that you don't expect to ever ever be broken. Yeah, um, I agree. Jorginho was, was linked as being like a big favourite because he won Champions League, it has to help. Messi yeah. as well, it could well be Messi. I don't really. He was very good I, last season. He was good, but in a way, he was very good, but only but you more so because America? everyone around him was dreadful. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, the, the kind of the, um, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it because um, the symbolism of him finally winning the international tournament is great. And, yeah. um, but I would give it to Lewandowski. How about you? Uh, Messi or Lewandowski, I, th- I think. You would give it as a, like a yeah, either, a Ballon d'Or each. Yeah, I think Lewandowski's uh, not old one, but I, th- I mean, he has been incredible like yeah. it, like he won't ever be better again this is this is his time Modric won it and I think Lewandowski was is right up that level uh, but Messi yeah will be the, probably the last one he ever wins I saw a terrible argument about Lewandowski the other day it was kind of basically oh you need space for a very very dominant Bayern Munich team no cannot abide by that yeah no 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 he's brilliant he's absolutely fantastic um, okay so by the time this comes out we will know who the Ballon d'Or winner is so we shall leave you goodbye DJ Bull goodbye Seb it was lovely I don't really know how to end it. I mean, I just, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.